you let me know. I want to hear your NPR voice. My NPR. Is it, I wonder, <laughs> do I sound different on the... <laughs> Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. And Josh Bashong. So today we have been at the Noble County Spring Forage meeting. It's kind of a road show. And we are kind of have done four or five of these so far. And so we have Dr. Brian Arnell with us today to talk about fertility on pastures and weed and all kinds of things. And we will refer to him if there's any chemistry that needs to be talked about because he's that guy. <laughs> so welcome, Brian. Thanks. I'm glad I got to see in chemistry. Yes. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Well, so did I, but I'm sure not as good at chemistry as you are. Yeah, well, biochem yeah. got me. Yeah. Well, on SunUp, you do like these chemistry things in the white lab coat, which is very funny. Okay. Yeah, I know that. And, and we're going to do some more of that. But yeah, so I, really I've cool. learned to appreciate chemistry a little bit better now that I have to teach it. Yeah. yeah. As a student, I wasn't really all that tutorious. So why don't, Josh, why don't you introduce Brian? Give him his background. Give them, the listeners, his background. Yeah, Josh. <laughs> Obviously, we've both been at OSU for quite some time. I say that as in decades, but uh, I guess I'm now on 20 years. You came in year two ahead of me, I think. Yeah. I started in June 03. June 00. So you got a few years ahead of me, but we both went to grad school, had some things, and you were always with the fertility group, obviously. I was always with the weed science group, but we had some fun together, oh, yeah. to say the least, from hunting trips and everything else along the way. But a lot of our work goes hand in hand. Anytime you're doing research, you have to be a master of everything else to isolate what you're working on. So you got to make sure fertility is good. So we always work together on a lot of things, mm -hmm. even throughout the canola years. We Oh, yeah. <laughs> had to rely on everybody for that. So, uh, But... Obviously, you from Northeast Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I give you a hard time. Maybe you had some heavy metal <laughs> issues. I, I grew up fairly close to Pitcher, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't know what that means. You don't know Pitcher? Oh, no. Chad's laughing. laughing at me. background. There here. might be yeah. some mental or neurological yeah, no. issues. So, really? So briefly, Pitcher is a Pitcher Carden mining district up there in the oh. very far northeast, and it was the Eagle Pitcher mines and the lead and zinc mines. And I did not go to Pitcher schools. I went to Wyandotte, but awfully close. So my family, uh, my mother's side, actually ran one of the last operating tour mines in that region. So oh. I, I am familiar. So lead was uh, lead concentrations were high, especially in children in that pitcher carton area around yeah. all the chat piles. Oh my goodness. So tongue in cheek, I don't mean mm -hmm. nothing by it, but nope. then obviously like Dana said, we've been on these uh, meetings lately, this kind of tour, as you might say, doing a lot of the same programs at several counties and that's why we're here today in Perry, but obviously Western Oklahoma, Eastern Oklahoma, just like this year, there's a big difference. Uh, kind of walk us through what you've been seeing on the pastures. Well, you know, um, it's just such a night and day difference as we move from east to west. I mean, eastern Oklahoma, we have uh, the northeast has amazing soil moisture, great uh, rainfall conditions. And as you move further west, you kind of hit it, it. We're right at that line right here where yeah. you go much east of Perry and you get good rainfall, much west of Perry and just goes down. And then as the further west, you know, we're, we're dealing with just no rain in in hundreds of days almost you know less than an inch less than two inches since in 2023 snow subsoil moisture whatsoever so normally at this time of the year we expect dry january dry dry december but we have some of those spring rains to rebuild our soil profile to work off of 
and we're just not. So that's really affecting a lot of the decisions as far as inputs go. Uh, Eastern Oklahoma, it's all about the nitrogen. Make sure you have that nitrogen on so that that crop is reaching its uh, full potential. But out here, as we go out west from Perry to out west, you know, my my caution is nitrogen is probably not our biggest limiting factor right now. We have more issues with water, so we need to pay really close attention to our immobile nutrients, our phosphorus and our potassium. Going back to, you know, like you said, keeping it easy on nitrogen, um, I want to say there's some data out of Texas showing that we're a lot more efficient with what water we do have if we have good nitrogen fertility mm -hmm. there. Uh, have you looked at that at all? Or? Yeah, so I, I haven't looked at it, but I can kind of talk about what that would be looking like. So you have both ends of the spectrum. You'd have, if you're under applied on your nitrogen, uh, especially if we look at further east where they have good rainfall, you just can't produce, you got enough water there, but you don't have enough nitrogen to produce the chlorophyll and the amino acids and the structure and the proteins. And so you may have the water, but you can't utilize the water and you you run you just run short on biomass. On the flip side, if we look at Western Oklahoma, you know, we we're in Tologa two days, two days ago. ago. Sorry, I got <laughs> lost there two it's days been a ago. Long week, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah you, you look at that and you could see how many fields you guys drove by that you see some of the old windrows or you see maybe where there was some extra fertility on a double up. Yeah. And that wheat is the bluest because now that excess nutrients had excessive, not excessive growth, it had more growth. It used more of the water resources even because it had the nutrients and now it's suffering first. You see the bigger wheat, the, the wheat that's pulled more. Uh, so you kind of walk this fine line with water and nitrogen. Too much water, not enough nitrogen, you lose production. Too much nitrogen, not enough water, and you get this excessive growth and you kind of hurt yourself in the long run. So what about... First, what is your other nutrients, so mm -hmm. the potassium and phosphorus, you focused on those today. Yep. What do those do for our forage? And then what's the interaction of that nitrogen okay. with those those nutrients? I think that's such an interesting kind of story. So we, we have a lot more nutrients. If we get into the crops like cotton, corn and stuff, we start talking about a lot more of the micronutrients. To be honest, our forage production just doesn't have the, the, the value in it to put a lot of inputs into our micronutrients. We can look at that on the horse hay, but we have the other nutrients that I would be primarily looking at would be uh, phosphorus, potassium, and in some cases, sulfur. That would be another one that I would consider in some areas. And what we have is that they're all at play. So we look at our, our yield potential and it goes back to something Josh would have had in probably several courses, but it's Liebig's law of the minimum, meaning that we can only produce up to the level what's our lowest common factor. And so what I've been talking about right now is that we really need to be paying attention to phosphorus and potassium because if we keep fertilizing with nitrogen, but our P and K is out of whack, meaning we don't have enough, we're limited. So we might put on 200 pounds of nitrogen, but we only have the phosphorus and potassium in the system support 100 pounds worth of production or, or two tons. So we can fertilize all we want with nitrogen, but unless we balance P and K, we're not going to have that same yield. So you've got to watch all three of those functions and factors when fertilizing. And kind of my, my counterpart in eastern Oklahoma, uh, Brian Pugh's mm -hmm. done some of that work where he's looked at a Bermuda field, a grazing pasture, and, you know, doing nothing, do nothing but mm -hmm. nitrogen, uh, do nothing but 2,4-D, 2,4-D and nitrogen. And then he had one that was 2,4-D, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, not limited. 
and it made three times as mm-hmm. much tonnage out there. Uh, so if you don't spray, you're growing a lot of weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll take it over just as easy as the Bermuda will. But uh, going back to weeds there for a second, uh, some others that we have, like especially native grass where we don't have a lot of herbicide options, would be Prairie 3 on, uh, tickle grass, witch grass, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Uh, we don't have a lot of herbicide options, like I said, but a lot of times those native grasses aren't competitive because it's not just nitrogen in that case, but mm-hmm. also phosphorus, potassium. We've seen correct those. We get those native mm-hmm. grasses to be a lot more competitive. Well, if you move east and, and even in this area, it's broom sedge, right? Yeah. Isn't um I can't remember the nicknames for that, yeah. but you see broom sedge pop up where you have typically low phosphorus or low soil pH because it's able to outcompete. Even in our cropland, you know, we 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 really get really good Italian rye growth yeah. when the wheat's not competitive. And so if we have those functions or those factors out there that are reducing the competitive nature of our desired species, it just lets those, those undesirables uh, really ramp up and take over. Yeah, overgrazing. That leads <laughs> yeah, to a lot that, of that. That does too, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, anytime we're overgrazing, we're just causing a wreck on all systems. Mm-hmm. So. so did you say that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, phosphorus is for root growth? Mm. That you know is that, is that kind of yep. yeah correct yep. me if I'm wrong no no you're you're absolutely right there's a lot more things about phosphorus but if I'm looking mm-hmm. just in the forage system and the importance of it is that that phosphorus availability especially at green up really helps the inner in energetic. Uh, root growth production and so getting that phosphorus really helps you get that early season growth because when when the soils are cool especially right you know we got Bermuda grass slowly starting to green up and we got our, our winter annuals starting to come on uh, if you grow faster or something the soils are cool and the root growth is is slow so roots are just not growing that much and so their access to phosphorus is also low and so by getting that phosphorus near that root it increases in concentrations the time it needs and allows that that plant to really explore the soil better and get a little bit more activity and so we'll see uh, both our forages and our crop crops like corn the early sown early planted corn gets a little bit of a boost from phosphorus because our soils are cold kind of time of year uh, you had in, in your talk today as well timing of those mm-hmm. immobile nutrients we often think we need to put those out over winter but now we're here when this gets published in april yeah. so so in the old school frame of thought it was always i want to get it on in a fall or winter so it's there in the spring we get it incorporated the reality is that phosphorus I would rather spring applied phosphorus because when that phosphorus sits in the soil, it is becoming chemically bound by the calcium and the magnesium and aluminum and iron. And so the longer it's in the soil and not being used by the plant, it's kind of like nitrogen. It's just there to be lost. Potassium, I'm I'm a little bit uh, more approving, I guess you'd say, of fall time because it doesn't get tied up the same way in the soil. Uh, But really... The P and the K that we apply as a fertilizer is really soluble, and when it rains, it will move down into that rooting zone. So the closer you apply that to green up, the more likely you have more of the nutrients available for green up. And so right now, we might be getting close to green up, but nobody really wants to spend money because it's so dry. I don't see any problem with holding back on that until it rains and then going investing. Unless you're, if you're already planning to invest, put it on. It's not going to go anywhere unless the wind blows it away. Another question, pasture uh, perennial forages, we usually 
don't have much of an issue with volatilization losses on the nitrate with urea using the dry prills because we have that get down to the camping mm -hmm. it's not getting the wind mm -hmm. to it but some of these like we've t discussed have been overgrazed and pretty much slicked off to bare soil as we're starting to warm up are you starting to think maybe we should look at some uan liquid on pastures or we're still not really i'm still okay so so the the benefit of the bare soil your let me go back to your keyword dry yeah dry is critical when you have that thatch right because it can the pro can work down in a thatch dry is also critical with the dry soil um in that it will just sit there now it might blow away i've seen pearls actually blow away if yeah. the if you have barren lens so you actually have like a desert of nutrients because it's been blown away uh, but it's not going to volatilize because it's just dry and it'll get rained in and even if it's windy and above 60 if, if it's windy and above 60 if unless there's humidity if we start getting humidity then we start having problems right so we, we go back to this whole moisture yeah. regime and where we're at if i'm humid i would much rather have liquid for one that liquid is going to hit that soil surface and it's going to be immediately absorbed to that soil surface and liquid is urea ammonium and nitrate so only half of it can volatilize yeah. the other half is ammonium and nitrate and so that will be absorbed right there in the soil ready to use so again if your pasture is not so rough that you can still run a sprayer that's that's a decent idea i don't like it on pasture that has a good thatch and it's dry because that liquid will be bound up by the the dry biomass yeah. and then another scenario where you got some high productive bermuda fields even under irrigation and stuff where we've typically seen heavy pre-plant nitrogen mm -hmm. Obviously, split apply, we've seen work time and time again, but how much would you cut back on a drought year like this? It'll go back to how much water do you have available. Yeah. And I'm still going to I'm still going to want to to split apply. If I can get enough water and really push it, I'm probably still looking at about 100 pounds. I'm going to look at that soil test value and probably put around maybe 100 pounds on, assuming that I'm going to be putting in 200 to 300 total. Right. So yeah. I'm wanting enough to cover my first cutting, but not much more than that. So look at your historic first cutting. Apply about 25% over that first cutting. Uh, and then if you're in that irrigated scenario, you ought to be basically fertilizing after each cutting and, yeah. and making those adjustments. So to just kind of wrap up on the the pastures and stuff, obviously, like Dana said, stocking rates. Stocking <laughs> uh, rates. We don't have anything to graze, but going into our winter grains or our wheat, especially, we still had some guys who still haven't hit it with top dress yet. We still yep. got some time, even though we're hitting joining right yeah. now. Yeah, um, and and unfortunately, I'm getting more and more calls that of guys that called two weeks ago saying they're planning to fertilize, yeah. and since we've missed those two rains, yeah. they have changed their plans. I can't argue with them. I mean, I can't. Uh, the deal is, though, and this is the nice thing, I have had response to nitrogen up to flag leaf. For grain yield. For grain yield. And for biomass, graze and grain, I get a response from both. Do I want to wait till flag leaf? No. No. But if if we get in this scenario where the the folks are trying to figure out, am I going to be zeroing out and not want to invest, or am I, you know, where am I at and I want to get rain? Yeah, we need to be on by by hollow stem. 
And we need to, if we wait till after Holliston, we need to acknowledge yield loss because, well, we've had yield loss because of the drought. The freeze, you were telling me earlier, yeah. how, how much yield have we, if it we had moisture, how much yield did we lose with that freeze? It, it was yeah, rough. a couple weeks ago. It, that 10 degrees on a Sunday morning. Yeah, in Kingfisher County, yeah, I got yeah. Uh, one location, it's nine degrees there. Yeah. So yeah. That, that took off the top of it. Uh, hopefully those secondary yep. tillers kind of fill in where the main mm-hmm. tillers might have got a little ding. Uh, that was already yep. pushing up into joining there on the early planted wheat at least. Yep. But we still got some small wheat that really hasn't set much roots, hasn't mm-hmm. it's thin to begin yep. with because we didn't get much mm-hmm. rain at sowing time. And and then we get back, had some meetings last week with Northwest Oklahoma. We got guys concerned about not making enough wheat hay. Yeah. And so just like you are saying with those, the graze out situations, we still could get a response mm-hmm. from nitrogen if we see a rain coming. Yeah. Those guys planning on doing some hay might see that benefit yep. from yeah we we did some stuff bronc finch he's now at universities of arkansas as forage specialist his his dissertation looked at nitrogen timing on basically a graze out system and because of this or that there's some times that we missed our hollis and we want to do a joining shot and you know how it goes trying to get yeah. to chickasha trying to get to buffalo you right. don't always get there and and so there were some times that we were you know we had we had the the holostim was solid four inches above ground when we fertilized we made looked at hay price and protein we made the money back 2x every time we did that when we knew it was yellow wheat we're applying nitrogen on yellow wheat if there's cowpox out there we got the money back yeah so you had a really good talk portion of your talk today about soil testing Mm -hmm. brian so you want to kind of like give us kind of your synopsis there on soil so testing the, how important is it is the it soil testing <laughs> yeah and and i'll be i'll be as nice as possible on here if you aren't you should um that this is a simple thing about that and i would love to see more intensive more regular like soil sampling on a regular basis but if, and I, I spoke to a farmer today he soil samples every three years and asked me do i need a soil sample again he hasn't had a cotton crop in three years i said you're probably okay Right. And so you've got, if you're in that scenario, you're good. But I also know a lot of folks have never sold sampled a farm in two generations, maybe. And so that knowledge, I put it this way, I've looked at a lot of people that tell me what they're going to do, what they're going to fertilize on a quarter section pasture or wheat. And then I take a soil test and I look at the difference on what difference could I have made them. That's commonly five to $10,000 easy either in lost yield because they didn't know they needed phosphorus or over fertilizing because they didn't need nitrogen or they didn't need phosphorus and they were just doing a a DAT plus urea and they didn't need to. And so look at it this way. A soil test is going to cost you $10 from OSU. And if you do it right, it's going to take you an hour of your time to pull samples. And an hour's being pretty... Yeah. That that's really intensive sampling for most farmers. Mm-hmm. So how many things do you do on your farm and ranch on a daily basis that has a five to ten thousand dollar return per hour? Not I don't many. think very many. There's things. not many. And so, right, and so we have that opportunity to do something just like you were saying. I mean, that nitrate test, that six dollar nitrate test when we were talking mm-hmm. earlier in a meeting that for the forage, yeah. Yeah. For the forages that, you know, only half of the people that see color change on the drop test send it in. Right. I mean, even just a full forage test for yeah. 20 bucks. I mean, as, as costly as your fertility yeah. is for crops or, or hay has been, like I, it, I can't believe that you wouldn't see that it would be yeah. effective. Changing so. your protein rations and changing right? your, and yeah. if you could drop how much you feed. 
Right. Yeah. And we would hope we would do that or yeah. or like keep condition on your cows yeah. by knowing you have to feed a little bit more. So, yeah, I thought that was just very, very good. I might have to use that in my <laughs> forage presentations <laughs> after, yeah. after we're yeah. done with this. Just, you know, how many jobs pay $10,000 yeah. an hour? Like you said, doing that every three years is still our recommendation, like on especially pastures mm -hmm. where we're mostly looking at those immobile nutrients like phosphorus, mm -hmm. potassium and pH and the nitrogen we can manage with what we're removing. But like you said, even in crop scenarios, especially as we start looking at those summer crops and different old seed crops, even cotton, it, it hands down, mm -hmm. it pays for itself. And like you said, it doesn't take much time to get 15, 20 cores, mix them in a bucket, put them in a bag, get them into the extension yep. office. Yeah, for someone but, who doesn't know, so how many, yeah. like on, a, on an 80 acres crop field, how many so, soil samples should you take? Field size doesn't matter. So okay, same whether size. it's okay. a garden or, because it, it's, okay. it's a numbers game. It's a okay. statistical game. Uh -huh. And so it takes 15 samples of any pop that's human, soil, any population. It takes okay. 15 to get to a good average where your variance, okay. the, the difference between high well, and low, at least, 15. at least 15. Well, that's 20 a good to 15. recommendation. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, 15, we like 20, Yeah, um, but okay. 15. I'm also going to say, so this stuff that's going to come out, you guys will see stop putting soil bags in ziplocs yeah. absolutely yeah do not do that or leave them on your so the or... crazy thing is so josh we'll have some stuff then it was at the winter crop school yeah. the soil testing bags the swaffle bags are like a polyester bag that like breathable breathable mm -hmm. because it can breathe its numbers are really stable it's when you use like a um the private the private companies use like this paper with wax line yeah. and you seal it or you put in a Ziploc. You create this little environment that the bacteria and stuff really ramp up in. Basically in silent. You yes. are. Well, yeah. And so we've seen the, the, the Ziploc or the commercial sample bag, it was influencing the soils that we pulled was like a 2% organic matter. So it's not great. It was a eighth of a pound of nitrate per day that it set in that bag, it increased. And oh. so in a week and a half or in like 10 days, we we increased our nitrate about 10 pounds. Like your nitrogen. Yeah, like, nitrogen so it's, that you measure. So it's falsely impacting yeah. your nitrate. It, nitrogen. It's basically releasing stuff that may not have been released. And so if you would have read 10 pounds, it's going to tell you you have 20. Huh. And if you sit there for two weeks on a truck, which I know nobody who's ever done that before, yeah. Ziploc bag in two weeks on a truck, you you know those smells. That that was a twenty four pound increase. Oh my goodness! You either spend twenty four pounds too much, or you spend twenty four pounds too little. Twenty four pounds could be ten bushel. Well, that would be a great poster to have in every extension office, mm -hmm. Brian. We're working I mean, on it. We're that'd be awesome. Yeah, that's and really good, Dana. Every extension office, like we said, we're in every county. Mm -hmm. We have soil probes to lend out to get yep. that six-inch depth mm -hmm. of sample uh, to get a good mixture because that's where most yep. of our roots yep. are. And then that one, at the very least, we call a composite sample, like you said, 15 cores mm -hmm. in that field, regardless of size. That's our base. That's our base. You can go up from there very easily. You know your fields. You might have different areas that are mm -hmm. producing more, producing less. You the crop that might be out there you can see differences maybe go sample that area and that mm -hmm. other area and treat them different yep. or slope i or use slope, slope a lot yeah. too if you don't really know it slope is or a pretty good predictor versus yep. a shell Bottom versus yep very different on what we're going to how we're <laughs> going to manage it and then all the way up to hiring someone out to do grid sampling mm -hmm. on uh get a lot of samples yep. out there to really get an idea for the whole field but even it some old data at osu you looked all the way down for every square foot mm -hmm. we saw differences yeah. oh, so. there, there's massive differences yeah yeah but 
at least the composite is a good mm -hmm. stepping stone and go from there and you can make it as intense that you yep. want and just remember this is my only add to the composite and i didn't tell this is that we got to realize that that sample is an average that's yeah. why we need 15 points to 20 points it's the average which means 50 percent of the samples you pulled were above that value and 50 percent were below mm -hmm. we don't know the range with that yeah. so maybe your your nitrogen says it's 20. we don't know the range between low and the high that's your average from that field i mean it could be 30 in some spots and 10 in others or it could be zero and you know 60 and so that's where breaking it up you learn a little bit more about what areas are high and low and your good producing areas tend to be lower in nutrients because they have been producing better than you've been fertilizing and your poor ground is higher in nutrients because you've been over applying it for the past well thanks again dr arnell for coming in and talking with us uh, you got your own podcast with some yep. other in cahoots on campus um <laughs> uh, yeah, what is that called, Josh? Red Dirt Agronomy. Red Dirt okay. Agronomy podcast, okay. yeah. Uh, where they're using Dave Deacon, an mm -hmm. uh, OSU alum and ex extension employee. And excellent. Maybe a little longer format than what we do here, <laughs> right. but yeah. uh, definitely some good listening if you're on a road trip or in a tractor. Uh, lots of good comical interactions with other specialists as well, yep. between yourself, Dr. Warren, Dr. Lofton, and, and all the specialists you've brought on there. So we really appreciate your time. and. Hope to continue all the work we've been doing with precision nutrient management and all the crops you work with. And you work yep. with pretty much all crops. All the crops that receive all the fertilizers. <laughs> all the crops and all the forages, All right? forages, too. Yep, all forages. Okay. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thank you, guys.